the decisions I make right now will shape my becoming either for, toward, or away from that calling to glorify Christ. Mm. To me, that makes the little moments matter a lot more than they otherwise would have. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Today, Dr. Keithley and Dr. Quinn will talk with Dr. Aaron Smith about the brain and human formation. In addition, Dr. Anna Dobb is with us in our segment called Headlines, and she'll also share a book recommendation in On My Bookshelf. But first, we wanted to remind you about our contest going on right now. Today's episode is the final episode of Season 3 of the Christ and Culture Podcast, and we want to know how we're doing. So go to the link in the show notes, give us your feedback on the podcast, and when you do, you'll be entered to win four free books and a CFC coffee mug. So click the link in our show notes, follow that link, and you can learn how you can be entered to win uh, our end-of-year giveaway to celebrate the end of Season 3 of the Christ and Culture Podcast. Now, let's jump to our segment called Headlines. And in today's edition of Headlines, we're going to talk about summer movies. Today in our headline segment, we have with us Dr. Anna Dobb. Dr. Dobb works with our Global Theological Initiatives here at Southeastern Seminary, and she's also one of my go-to pop culture experts here at the Christ and Culture podcast and on the blog. You can read her takes on everything from Baby Yoda to This Is Us to WandaVision on our Christ and Culture blog. But we're glad to have Dr. Dobb with us today to talk about summer movies. Dr. Dobb, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So what summer movies should our listeners be aware of that are coming out this summer? I have been very excited. Uh, I was researching to get ready for this podcast, and there's some big movies happening this summer. The first one that people have already been talking about is Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3. It kind of finishes off the Guardians trilogy and the the guy who uh, directs it this he kind of considers this i think from what i've seen online as kind of his magnum opus as it uncovers the origin story of rocket the raccoon and and deals a lot with like what is friendship um it deals a lot with what is beauty what is what is goodness um and deals a lot with kind of giving people second chances so so there's some some pretty interesting themes in Guardians of the Galaxy. And then there's The Little Mermaid, which I think is another one that everybody's really excited about. I haven't seen that one yet, but I'm going to this weekend. I love The Little Mermaid. That's actually fun fact for my listeners was the first movie I saw in theaters as a child. And so I have memories of going to the movie theater to see the animated version of Little Mermaid and have just loved that story Forever. It is interesting. I, I will say I loved it as a kid too, but watching it as a parent, I'm like, whoa, this is a terrible child. She's a terrible <laughs> child. So I, I, I can't get my, get that out of my mind as I watch this movie, but go ahead. No, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I actually have told people as I've gotten older, a lot of the Disney princess movies, I have that kind of moment of like, oh, I would not recommend this. I don't have children. <laughs> I, like it's actually not a good thing to emulate some of the things that Ariel does. And Interestingly, I had not thought about this as a kid, but as somebody who's like my world is missiology now, I'd never thought about the cross-cultural element of The Little Mermaid. 
uh, you really do have this girl who yearns for a different world and, and really a different culture and has this yearning to go there and then has this really honeymoon stage uh, part of culture shock displayed in the movie. So she, I don't, I don't know if our listeners know about culture shock, but there's a cycle that you kind of go through when you enter a new, into a new culture at the beginning, it's called the honeymoon phase. And you really do see um, like, everything's wonderful. Everything's exotic and cool and beautiful. And I love the discovery of it. And then you, most people go through like kind of a disillusionment phase where everything's terrible and I hate it. And this culture doesn't make any sense and nothing, nothing's giving me the expected results. And then you have this kind of acceptance and, a, and adjustment phases that make you to where you can like live in this culture long-term. And what I think is really interesting, thinking back on the original, I don't know if they're going to do this in the new one, but it, thinking back on the original, like she is in the honeymoon phase. Everything is cool. Everything is exotic. She loves everything about this new world. And they kind of foil it with Sebastian, who just thinks the world above the ocean is the worst place on the face of the planet. Mm. As a missiologist, looking back at the old movie was like, oh, my gosh, there's such a like mirror of some of the things that people go through with culture. Um, so I'm excited about that one. Into the Spider-Verse is another one that I'm like really excited about. Uh, I actually just got back from a trip overseas to Brazil and watched the original one so that I can be prepared for the second one uh, because I I love the story, the animation. It's just a lot of fun. They tend to be, uh, the first one at least was, uh, was fairly kid-friendly and just told a really good story about kind of an unexpected hero and uh, being able to, to kind of navigate some of the issues that come from his father come uh, come from his understanding of Spider-Man, his not wanting to take the role on, not really feeling good enough to take the role on, not really being ready for this. Uh, and so I'm interested to see where they go with the second one when they kind of open the Spider-Verse a little bit more and have all these Spider-Mans. And uh, I do think there's going to be a little bit of Miles kind of coming into himself as Spider-Man. And I think from the trailer, it looks like there's going to be a disagreement. I don't know what the disagreement's going to be about. And him trying to figure out, the question that always comes with Spider-Man, how do I navigate what's the greater good, the life of one or the life of many? And I think it seems like they're going to bring that to the surface again uh, in a really interesting way. So I'm, I'm excited about that one. Mm. Kind of the unexpected one for me that I have, have grown in my excitement about is the Barbie movie. When they first announced it, I thought this is going to be the craziest movie ever. And I really wasn't excited about it. But, you know, when you think about spiritual elements and like conversations we can have for movies, I'm actually thinking this one may have an opportunity for us to have some spiritual conversations from the last trailer. So from all the like teaser trailers, I was like, oh, this is going to be superficial, fluffy, weird. But then the last trailer really has her dealing with some really deep things. So like she's in the middle of this party and she's like, today's the best day ever. And yesterday was the best day ever. And tomorrow's going to be the best day ever. And then she like stops and says, have you guys ever thought about dying? Just this really deep question. And she kind of has to go to the real world to figure out whatever the answers to her questions are. I think it seems like she's having bad dreams. I don't know that for a fact, but she's wrestling with, the, but there's something more, there's something more real and has to like go to the real world to find it. And I'm really intrigued to see where they go with that. Uh, like I said, before that, I was like, this is going to be fluff movie. Once I saw that trailer, I was like, maybe this is going to have some really cool, like jumping off spots for spiritual conversations. Just in that question alone, have you ever yeah, thought about that? Yeah. Especially in our culture where it's like, let's have fun. Let's do all the things, have adventures. And then to have someone stop and say this really deep question is just something I, I, I think will be interesting to explore. So we have the movie Elemental that's going to come out, animated movie. It's about the, the four elements and how they can't. They can't get along. Uh, they can't live together. They can't know each other. 
And then there's two, I think it's water and fire that kind of meet each other. And what does that look like? What does that look like for me to be in, in a friendship or relationship with somebody who's really different than me? I think that might have some really interesting uh, jumping off points for us in the future. The other big one that I think is anticipated by a lot of people, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I love Indiana Jones. I love Harrison Ford. I think he's great. Um, I'm really interested to see what they do with this one. It looks like it's going to be fairly nostalgic. They're bringing back a lot of the, the big name people from the past movies. He's going to go out on like one last, one great last adventure. Uh, this Dial of Destiny is the ability for, for whoever holds it to be able to kind of rewrite history. Um, I think it's really interesting how much we love playing with the idea of rewriting history because I think a lot of us want second chances we want to we want to wonder like what would happen if we go a different way um and so I I'm excited to see what they do with that I hope this is a really like great nostalgic fun movie that lets kind of the Indiana Jones franchise move on and then the other kind of big one that I know of that's happening in the summer kind of my last one would be the flash that's coming up uh, this is DC's big summer movie this year. Um, Michael Keaton back as Batman, right? I know. Kind of crazy. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun, I think. I will say, like, just so our listeners are aware, there's some controversy that that surrounds that movie because of the main character and, and him as a as a person, like like the actor himself has made some pretty terrible choices in his life and has some maybe even criminal charges against him. And so there's a lot of people who are calling for that movie to have never even made it to theaters. Uh, there's some controversy there. It obviously did make it to theaters. They're obviously publicizing a lot. Again, it's another like multiverse idea movie, which Nathaniel, you and I have talked about this before. We I think have, it's yeah. how much we love right now, the multiverse. I am still trying to really wrap my head around what I think that means for us, but there's just so many movies right now that are doing multiverse stories, including into the spider verse. Um, and, and some others that are coming out uh, and have come and have come out. And so I'm really interested to see, like, what are they going to do with the multiverse um, in in this story from the trailer? It looks like they're doing like flashes, kind of a uh, flashpoint story where he decides to go back in time to try to save his parents because there's all kinds of like sadness in his origin story, as all super superheroes tend to have. I'm telling and you, so if you're a superhero, you've got some sort of awful, awful tragedy in your backstory. You really do. You really do. But yeah, so Flash is going to try to go back and save his parents and it's going to like rupture the, the, the universe in some kind of significant way. I always find that story interesting. That's a, that's a fairly well-known Flash story. Just the, the reality that like our choices, even if we mean to do really good things, can have like really bad consequences. I think that's another like spiritual aspect we can, we can bring out or at least conversation point we can bring out of stories like that. So yeah, we've got a big movie summer. Uh, and I look forward to maybe being able to to see them and think about them and talk about how we can think about them from a Christian viewpoint. Lots of interesting movies. And I'm sure if one rises to that level of interest, then Dr. Dobb will write for us in the blog and tell us about how it connects to our faith as well. Dr. Dobb, thank you for joining us today. We also want to let you know two things. One, she talked about the multiverse. And it is an interesting theme that so many of these movies deal with the multiverse. We had an interesting conversation earlier in the season with Dr. Jeff Zwerink about his take on the multiverse. It kind of blew my mind. So you can go back and listen to that. And also Dr. Dobb is on our sister podcast, the Scent Life podcast this summer, as they have a special series this summer on global theological initiatives. You'll want to hop over to that, uh, subscribe and listen to the Scent Life uh, to hear those conversations this summer. Dr. Dobb, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. 
How can understanding the brain teach us to love God better? To help us answer that question, Dr. Aaron Smith from California Baptist University is here again with us. Dr. Smith, it's great to have you. She is the Fletcher Jones Endowed Professor of Research and Professor of Psychology. Trained in developmental psychology, her research explores issues at the intersection of science and Christianity, including the practices of effective church children's ministry and how psychology informs theological anthropology. That's quite the mouthful. Dr. Smith, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Smith, how does understanding cognitive processes and how the brain works, how does that help us understand spiritual formation and relating to God better? Yeah, thank you for that question. I am a firm believer that when we understand how we work, how our bodies work, how they were designed to engage in this world um, in, in relationship, we can better situate ourselves to act according to our calling. And so for me, when I want to understand uh, how to live according to God's call on my life, if I peel the layers back all the way down to the neurons in my brain, it gives me a new language with which to think about habit formation in pursuit of the kinds of habits that would that would be fitting for that calling that would that would help develop me into this person that God has called me to be. And so I think about the layers of what's going on in my brain and how that influences my thinking and my behavior and ultimately my capacity from my capacity to interact with God. So you're thinking about thinking. And since mm-hmm. we're doing that today, how do the objects of our attention change our hearts. Mm. So attention is the gateway to everything. So much of our knowledge is actually outside of our awareness, uh, stored either in long-term memory that we're not thinking about it currently, so we're not conscious of that information, or stored in other kinds of memory systems, what psychologists refer to as implicit memory systems, meaning outside of our conscious awareness, even if we wanted to be able to think about them. But what attention does is attention directs what is the content of our mind and memory in the here and now. And so it is the gateway with which we form those long-term memories, this database storage that will reference any time we want to make sense of a current situation. So right now as I'm speaking, I'm speaking with words I've never used in this order, in this context. You've never heard these words in this order, in this context. And yet you're able, hopefully, to understand what I'm saying in part because your brain is doing this hard work of constantly referencing this long-term memory database to make sense of the present and the here and now. But that's only possible with your direction of attention to these words. And so attention is the gateway. It's this filter by which we both get information into long-term memory and then also in the future make sense of new information. So would this be a bad analogy? So the active conscious part of your brain, you know, like you, you and I are talking right now, it's really just the tip of, of, of an iceberg of a whole lifetime of, like you say, stored memories and ways of processing things. And so therefore, uh, the way you've done it in the past for good or for ill mm-hmm. really does impact. This is why certain things can to use a use a, a word that we use today can trigger certain mm-hmm. reactions 
certain inclinations, uh, certain emotions. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. So, um, and and I, I, the and the the iceberg analogy I think is accurate, but it also has some baggage with it. So let me give you a different analogy. So it's an iceberg um, with with baggage. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is in part because it's also often associated with Freud's iceberg yeah. kind of typology of human persons. Um, but there's this great picture that, um, that that I found. So I am not the originator of this, but it shows a picture of our solar system with the planet Earth. And then it kind of has this little arrow that says you are here. And so if you imagine the physical space that you occupy in the context of our solar system, that's like your consciousness, right? Your physical space relative to the unconscious swaths of everything beneath the surface that is going to influence how you understand your particular context in that moment. Absolutely. So going back to this notion of attention, in a blog on our Christ and Culture website, you wrote, the brain we are creating today, quote, uh, in parentheses, then out of our attention is the filter through which we will make sense of all future experiences. Let me read that again. You said the brain we are creating today out of our attention is the filter through which we will make sense of all future experiences. Now, I want to ask you, what do you mean? But more specifically, in, in our world where it's increasingly hard not only to pay attention because we're so distracted with so many screens, but as people who preach and teach and, in, and, and are in front of people all the time, it's, it's hard to keep attention. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to ourselves as we allow ourselves to be so distracted? Yeah. So let me answer the first question, but let's circle back to the distraction question. So what happens when we pay attention to something is we're creating neural networks. The whole job of your brain is to be an efficient processor of information. Your brain takes up like 20% of the metabolic requirements of your body, even though it's only about three pounds. And so if you think about proportionally, your brain is the metabolic sink. It's an energy sink in, in your brain. Because so if I it's think doing... harder, I'll lose more weight. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, let's, we'll, we won't we'll touch that one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and so your brain is really in the business of trying to increase its efficiency because it's costly to be inefficient, physically costly in terms of the metabolic energy requirements of your brain. And so it does this by creating neural networks that that can fire automatically. So there's an axiom in neuroscience that says neurons that fire together wire together. So this means that when neurons practice, the neurons as the building blocks of your brain and central nervous nervous system, when they practice firing together, they are more efficient to recreate that neural pathway the next time. It's like if you walk through the forest and there's not really a path, the more you walk that same path, eventually your feet will have trodden down the dirt and you'll have moved the branches away and it's easier for you to travel that path. So your brain is doing the same thing. But what that also means is that in the future, your brain has a pre-wired system to activate in particular contexts. So the more you practice, say, a certain behavior, you create a neural network that efficiently supports the automatic activation of that behavior, which is why when you first learned to drive, it was really hard. You maybe didn't have the radio on. You didn't talk to people in the car. You 10 and 2. Where are my hands? Where is the? And you had to consciously think through everything, and it was very laborious. Now you can get in your car and drive 30 minutes home, pull into your driveway and wonder, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. And have no conscious recollection of that process because you've automatized through the creation of these neural networks that process. And so when it comes to driving, this makes a lot of sense because we've experienced this. 
But the thing is, is our brain doesn't differentiate driving from other habits and behaviors that we do. So when I practice responding to my children impatiently, that becomes an automatic response in which even if I want to respond in patients, if I've well practiced it, that neural network, it starts to cycle automatically bringing that impatient tone back into my voice. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of where I'm, I'm thinking when I – what attention does now relative to what I wrote in that blog, my attention to what I'm doing now – helps me create the kinds of neural circuits that automatically produce the kinds of behaviors I want in the future. And so if I, am, if I find myself, by paying attention, responding impatiently to my children, in my attention to my response, I can disrupt it and start to recreate a different neural pattern that in the future makes patience my automatic response, right? A, a disposition of patience as opposed to kind of this automatic response of impatience. Oh, this raises so many questions. And <laughs> I like how you use the analogy of a path. And I'm thinking, yes, and when that path is walked on enough times, it becomes a rut. And so, therefore, habits become literally ingrained. Mm -hmm. So that brings the question, um, I want to change. But you're saying that if I'm going to change, my brain is going to have to change. Mm -hmm. um, can we change our brains? Yes. So right now, your brain is changing. Everything you do is changing your brain. You can sit passively in the park and observe the birds. Your brain is changing. You can have a deep intellectual conversation. Your brain is changing. You can change a child's diaper and your brain is changing. The thing is, is that all these changes are temporary and short term unless they're practiced. And so the way that we change our brains is oftentimes the exact the same way that we created those brains in the first place, which is by repeated practice. And by the time we get to a place where we might be able to reflect on our lives and think, wow, I am, I'm just so prone to anger in this situation. Well, the question is, how did that happen? Well, I practiced the kinds of habits that brought me to that place. And so now it might be well ingrained. The way I change it is the exact same way it got there in the first place slow and repeated activation of a different option. Now, overriding your neural circuits is going to be more laborious than creating them in the first place, especially when, I, I mean, I think about kind of what does it mean to have a new nature, to put on the new nature of Christ. Um, when we want to kind of overcome this original nature that we have, this fleshly nature, it's going to be harder to choose goodness over anger or patience over some of these other more um, naturalistic um, dispositions, but it is possible. And one of the things that I think about in this regard, I actually think about this parable, the parable of the talents. I think about this a lot. Um, I am not sure that at the end of my life, God is going to say, why didn't you X, Y, Z? I think the question he is going to ask me is, what did you do with what you were given? Mm -hmm. And so it's not really up to me to have a certain neural network at the end of my life. The question is, what, what did I bring? What did I invest with whatever my neural networks were when I started to when I said, God, this is your brain? because I want to be your, your vessel, your agent. The question is, what did I do to help cultivate that with the work of the Spirit in my life? So I want to jump to that. The, 
in, in each of our podcasts this season, we end with a question about spiritual formation. And some conversations lend themselves better towards that than others. I want to jump to it a little quicker in this conversation because I, I can imagine a listener uh, hearing this and, and, and then trying to draw the conclusion or potentially drawing the conclusion that, Dr. Smith, are you saying that all I have to do to grow in Christ is to have better mental discipline? Because mm-hmm. if I just change my neuropathways, all of my, all the vices of my soul, impatience and all the rest of it is really a, it's a habit of the mind and that spiritual formation and, and transformation is changing your mind. Is that, is that a, now keep in mind, Dr. as she thinks about this, she's the one who's taught us this great word, psych science. And so at every chance I'm trying to think through what does this mean? And so I'll give you a second or two to ponder the question in light of psych science, how does this relate to spiritual formation and sort of changing the brain? Yeah, um, I appreciate that question in part because what I do not want listeners to walk away with is the idea that I think that you can just kind of change your thinking, change your life, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is not Mm -hmm. the lesson here. But as fully embodied persons, one of the things that I think psychological science inclines us to ask is, where do we have agency in cooperation and in participation with the spirit? And when it comes to the direction of our attention, as it ultimately creates neural pathways that then make possible certain kinds of automatic behaviors and habits in the future, I think this is one place where we have um, a particular obligation to be thoughtful and attentive to the kinds of, of things that we are doing and the kinds of brains that we are shaping, not because this is spiritual formation, but it is our participation ultimately in the work of the spirit. Yeah. So when you hear, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, is this what, is this what Paul is talking about? Is this what you're tapping into? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if Paul was developing a, a theory of neural networks. He was definitely networks, talking psych science. Science. But, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, the Apostle Paul is one of my favorite friends in the psychological classroom because he mm. has so much to say about human nature and human behavior yeah. in a way that um, readily crosses disciplinary boundaries. Uh, and I do think that this, this is part of it. And I, I like to think about that verse in conjunction with the admonition to think on what is good, right, and true. Yeah, why, yeah. why do scriptures compel us to direct our attention in particular ways? Because the way that we direct our attention creates filters mm. and long-term memory databases that then in the future, that's what our brains are going to reference because that's the way we've been built. Yeah. Not as some kind of shortcut cure to spiritual formation, but as a practical grounding of the way in which God made us to operate in this world. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious how you would hear, how, how do you hear the love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind? And here's why I ask that, because I suspect in a context like ours, and oftentimes the way that I've probably applied this in my own life and in my own teaching is you need to read more, have better conversations Mm. and so on. And all those things are probably true. But I think you're putting a different spin on it and kind of sharpening the point of that a little better, that actually to take thought or take captive those thoughts in our minds is doing that hard work of maybe rewiring some um, some vicious neural pathways Mm -hmm. that that actually might lead to greater virtue and to a greater loving of God with your mind. Is that fair? It is. And one of the best ways to do this has its parallels in kind of modern 
um, psychotherapy practice, but it also has roots in our Christian tradition of mindfulness and meditation. Mm. So yeah. when you this word mindfulness can mean so many different things. So when I use it, I mean an acute attention to the present moment. And so what 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 does that mean? That means that when I am here with with you, I am yeah. both here physically, but I am also here in my mind. Yeah. I am not. You asked a question about distraction, right? My phone is on silent. It is out of my view. So that way I can't be, allow my attention to be pulled Mm. so I can be mindful and hear and open. When I am mindful and present, that opens me up both in terms of, we can think about the neural circuits that I'm creating, but also in terms of the emotional space Mm. to create the kinds of relationships that are related to deep change and transformation. Because we can't think ourselves better. Mm. That's just part of the process. Ultimately, we need that relational connection, and attention is the way that we can do that to create the kinds of neural networks that allow us and open us up to relational connection. I'm glad you've mentioned agency and making the choice because one of the things that you've already pointed out is that uh, that habits, once they're ingrained, it's easier to just do those Mm -hmm. rather than doing the difficult thing of changing. And so you almost... You have this uh, chicken and the egg question. Okay, I think that I need to change. Well, that's an act of the will. Okay, how is the will involved in everything we're doing? Let me ask a, a, a tough question related to that then. What about those areas in which it involves the emotions? In, in that, let's say that someone is struggling with um, anger. Mm-hmm. And that there are situations that just will send the person off in a way that perhaps it's almost Romans 7. Uh, He doesn't quite even understand Mm -hmm. why he reacts in the way that he does. So if you were trying to give some counsel and and try to give, you know, to, to be a help to a brother or sister who's struggling in this way, what would you encourage them? How what would be the approach you would take? There are um, a lot of different approaches, but in line with this conversation with the brain, at this point, we don't have the technology to just open up your brain and rewire you and ta-da, you're done. Yeah, no and more anger. S- and so, so we can't think about, say, direct intervention on the brain. But that emotion has a neural circuit, which also means it is a physical process at some level that can be disrupted and reshaped and rewired the same way at one point in my life I didn't know how to walk and now I do. At one point I didn't know how to drive and now I do. These are all habits and behaviors in the same way, like rooted in brain processes in the same way that anger is in the same way that goodness is, in the same way that patience is. It's not to say that these things are reducible to these brain states, but that they have physical components, which for me gives hope that if I if I realize, oh, I have this particular pattern and I responded and I have no idea why I'm responding this way and it's not what I want to do because I know that there is a physical component to it, that gives me an inroads for disrupting it. And actually mindfulness is one of the best ways to do that. And pairing mindfulness in the, in the context of think of what is good, right, and true. What is the, pres- the, the contents of my mind And what can I do when I have this experience? Even if I notice it just kind of right after the fact, that's the first step of, oh, I I realized I executed this behavior and now maybe I'm going to run through, well, what could I have done? And practice via mental imagery another possible solution. 
right? And then kind of consistently go through this practice of confessing, I did this, I responded in anger, and I, I see that there is another possibility open to me. Because sometimes in the moment, we just don't see the other possibility. And even visualizing and kind of running through this could have been situation in your mind can start to prepare those neural pathways for executing that possibility in the future. Mm -hmm. And so mindfulness, this kind of moment of quiet reflection where you say, I just did this. What? How else could I have interpreted this situation? How else could I have engaged can actually open up possible venues in the future. And I think that's best done in community. So for the sake of continuity, so that we end this podcast the way we have all the others, as we think about the brain in route to spiritual transformation, what hath the brain to do with spiritual transformation or spiritual formation? For a number of people, I would say you don't need to know the details for spiritual formation. However, for those that want to understand the layers of what it means to be human in the context of our calling to glorify God, um, to reflect Christ, I think understanding that the decisions I make right now will shape my becoming either for, toward, or away from that calling to glorify Christ. Mm. To me, that makes the little moments matter mm. a lot more than they otherwise would have. I think one of the pressing issues, again, you, you'd ask kind of the question about distraction and attention. I think this is not a trivial question. Mm. Because the way in which I allow my attention to be controlled outside of my own agency, whether it be through my smartphone notifications or my incessant scrolling or whatever that the case might be, that has long-term implications for the likelihood of that continued and even magnified engagement in the future, that our brains have something akin to a social media algorithm to continue to feed us more of what we've told it is important to us. And the way that we communicate to our brain is through our repeated behavior. Hmm. Um, and so when, when I think about why should we have these conversations? Because we need to understand that it's not just this behavior this one time, but it's this behavior in the context of a life that is being formed both by God, but also from the inside out, um, yeah. from the neurons out. Yeah. Dr. Smith, how could our listeners follow your work? Probably the best way is through blogs. I hope to be a semi-regular contributor at the Center for Faith and Culture. I also write for the Center for the Study of Human Behavior at California Baptist University, a blog geared primarily toward undergraduate students, but hopefully interesting and accessible um, for all thinking about all things psych science. <laughs> That's a new, we're going to put a new section on our website, just psych science with okay. Dr. Smith. That's what we'll have to do. Nathaniel, <laughs> if we can add that that uh, vertical to our website. Dr. Smith, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have with us Dr. Anna Dobb. Dr. Dobb, what's on your bookshelf? I wanted to introduce the readers to a book called Apostolic Imagination 
Rediscovering a Biblical Vision for the Church's Mission Today by J.D. Payne. Um, this is a book that I've started to use in my classroom for my intro to missions classes. And um, J.D. Payne gives us a, a pretty good lay of the land um, in some of the, the, the questions and controversies and issues that we're facing in missions right now. And then gives us, uh, that's kind of part one for him, part two is going to be reimagining co contemporary missions. And it kind of gives his suggestions for how would we move forward, uh, looking at reimagining re language, identity, priority, function, location, strategy, and the West. And I just think he gives some really good food for thought for those who are interested in what does missions look like in the 21st century. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that book recommendation. And thank you all for listening. It's been a good season here at the Christ and Culture podcast. We're going to wrap up the season today. Uh, if you enjoyed it, give us a, a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform of choice. Go to our website, uh, cfc.sebts.edu. We've got a contest running there for the next week or so where you can enter to win uh, free books. If you're going to give us some feedback on the podcast, how we can improve. We're going to drop a few bonus episodes throughout the summer, so be on the lookout for those. But we'll be back in the fall with a brand new season uh, of the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.